right, we are in Acts chapter 28, starting in verse 11. Three months later, we set sail on a ship that had wintered at the island, an Alexandrian ship with the twin brothers as its figurehead. We put in at Syracuse and stayed there for three days. Then we weighed anchor and came to a town that starts with the letter R. <laughs> After one day, a south wind sprang up, and on the second day, we came to a town that starts with the letter P. <laughs> there we found brothers and sisters and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And so we came to Rome. The brothers and the sisters from there, when they heard of us, came as far as the forum of that place and three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. When we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to live by himself with the soldier who was guarding him. Three days later, he, he called together the local leaders of the Jews. When they had assembled, he said to them, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our ancestors, yet I was arrested in Jerusalem and handed over to the Romans. When they had examined me, the Romans wanted to release me because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But when the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to the emperor, even though I had no charge to bring against my people. For this reason, therefore, I ask to see you and speak with you, since it is for the sake of the hope of Israel that I am bound with this chain. They replied, We have received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken anything evil about you. But we would like to hear from you what you think, for with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. After they had set a day to meet with him, they came to, they came to him at his lodgings in great numbers. From morning until evening, he explained the matter to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. Some were convinced by what he had said, while others refused to believe. So they disagreed with each other, and as they were leaving, Paul made one further statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your ancestors through the prophet Isaiah, Go to this people and say, You will indeed listen, but never understand. And you will indeed look, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and their ears are hard of hearing, and they have shut their eyes. Otherwise they might look with their eyes, and listen with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would, and I would heal them. Let it be known to you then that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right. Hello, everyone. Good morning. Um, I'm really glad to see all of you. I just got back uh, from uh, Hawaii. Uh, my wife and I were there on Oahu. Of course, we were not on Maui, but uh, our prayers and grief are with the people of Maui uh, as they've just experienced these terrifying and devastating um, wildfires. Uh, we posted on our Instagram and Facebook um, that the uh, Foursquare Disaster Relief, they're on the ground right now in Maui, and uh, there is a way to give to that effort uh, via the link um, in their website. And so if you want to give to them, uh, they are there uh, doing what they can to help the people who have experienced uh, the loss of family and property. So uh, you can do that. We were there for a different reason. Uh, we were there for uh, my daughter's first birthday. She just turned one. Her name's Brooklyn. 
And uh, it was really, really awesome. Our family uh, in Hawaii, they celebrate the first birthday in a really big way. It's kind of like a quinceanera or a sweet 16 or something because the mortality rate for infants used to be really, really terrible. And so if they made it to their first year, it was kind of like this really big deal. They're going to make it. So they, that tradition is held over. And so we celebrated her first birthday uh, in, in style, and it was extravagant and lovely and, and wonderful. But I do have to say, I think I am probably the worst version of myself when I am on vacations. <laughs> Anyone else relate to me on that one? No? Uh, they, a wise person once said to me that when you have small children, you no longer go on vacations, you go on family trips. And they are different. Um, when you have small children, there's not a lot of relaxing that goes on. You're having good times, you're making good memories, and you're enjoying yourself, but it's hardly a lot of, of rest. And I think that when I... Uh, am disrupted of my rhythms and my norm, my normalcy in my in my normal week. Uh, I tend to be a little more impatient. I tend to be more irritable, a shorter temper. Um, you kids better have fun because it's costing us a fortune to have this much fun, right? Like, you're not laughing hard enough. Laugh harder. That's an expensive laugh. Um, don't your mother and I look happy, right? Like that's kind of where we're at. I have this ideal picture of how the trip is supposed to go in my head, uh, and I go in with that expectation, and I spend the whole trip trying to um, make muscle that trip into what I think it's supposed to be. And of course it doesn't work, um, which makes everyone else a lot more miserable, right, than it needs to be. Um, I'm not like Paul that we just read about, right? You read about how much horrible stuff Paul has to go through. Uh, he's, he's being persecuted. He's being put on, on trial for, for execution. And yet, the scriptures always depict him as this joyful, non-anxious guy, right? Why is this? How do we get that peaceful, joyful, non-anxious presence of Paul? Paul was able to do more in building the kingdom than I could probably ever hope to do in my lifetime. And yet, he carried himself in a way that even amidst persecution, people actively trying to get at him, being a prisoner, he carried himself with peace and joy. He was this non-anxious presence. And I want that in my life. Why can't I have that? Well, the problem is that we often want to move and shake like Paul, right? We want to see the kingdom break out like we saw with Paul. But Paul had one really important thing going for him. He was completely, fully dependent upon the Holy Spirit. He completely relied on the power and the presence of God in his life to see these amazing things come to pass. See, our problem, or at least my problem, maybe it's not yours, but my problem is that we like to try to build paradise without God. We try to create heaven on earth without Jesus. Mark Zayers likes to say it like this, that we are all about the kingdom, but we don't want the king. What does it look like for us to try to build heaven without Jesus? Well, it looks like a few things. One, it means that we're trying to do good in the world based on our standards and definitions of goodness. The problem is that our goodness is a far cry from God's holiness. It also means that we're outraged by injustice. So we try to be just, and we try to hold the unjust accountable, but it's based on our standards of goodness and justice, and that's why it's never sufficient. It means that we're also saddened by loss and by pain and by suffering, so we try to ease it, or we try to avoid it, which of course is futile. And for us Christians, we even want others to be Christians, 
But it's not always because we want to share the goodness that we've been given, but because we want to be vindicated in our own beliefs. So we try to sell Jesus and manipulate people into the kingdom. We end up attempting to build our own version of utopia, but building a good society, apart from the one who defines what is good, is impossible. And so we stress and we flail beneath the pressure of trying to make things right, and it never really works, so we become anxious, we become reactive and stressed, and we get crushed under the pressure, right? But Paul was able to advance the kingdom without being plagued by anxiety, without succumbing to fear and pressure, because ultimately he knew that he was participating in something that God was doing, rather than trying to get God on board with something that he was doing, right? So the good news is this, the key to the spirit-filled life, like Paul, is attainable for us. It requires faithfulness to Jesus, not a faithfulness to an ideology or an institution, a method of our own paradise and utopia. It's through our loving union with God. When we try to build heaven ourselves, it doesn't work, and we get frustrated, discouraged, and bitter. But when we follow the move of the Spirit, we invite a heavenly hope which will transcend our simple worldly solutions. So our faith is not about an ideology or a philosophy. It's about loving union with God. Our faith is not about an ideology or philosophy. It's about a loving union with God. Uh, the biblical scholar William J. Larkin Jr. says this, Today, utopias of the left and right are in shambles. People are uncertain, even apprehensive, whether the kingdoms of this world can manage the present, let alone the future. They are ready for the good news about the kingdom of God. See, the the harder our economy dips, the more our leaders fail to address injustice, the more geopolitical uncertainty settles in, the more people are going to be ruled or tempted to be ruled by their fear, their anxiety, our tribalism, and our pride. That's what we resort to when we experience these things. The good news of the kingdom has the same implications today as it did in AD 62. Our worldly solutions to our worldly problems will never be enough to bring us peace. But in Christ, we have a hope for this world that is beyond this world. And that hope has arrived and will arrive in finality one day. Until then, Followers of Jesus, we don't put our hope in ideologies that are in this world, but in the love of Jesus and in the power of the Spirit. Sorry, my computer's asking me to sign into this thing and it keeps bugging me, so just go away already. Incorrect password. Great. Just leave me alone. Okay. All right, so today we're going to unpack the text a bit and we're going to figure out what was going on and we'll examine the significance that these truths hold for us today. And uh, I'll examine uh, kind of what it looks like for us to become these non-anxious, peaceful, joyful people who carry the hope of Jesus and our mission as the church like Paul did. Let's pray. Jesus, we ask that you would speak to us this morning. We ask that as we move into our world as agents of reconciliation and the kingdom, that you would have your power revealed. That it wouldn't be our power that we're trying to manifest, but it'd be yours that we're trying to share. Lord, we love you and we ask for your wisdom. In your name we pray. 
Amen. Okay, so guys, this is the last week of our series in the book of Acts. We've been in it all summer, and I love this book because they, they say that the, 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 the formula for the next hundred years of something is found in the first ten. And I think this is true of our movement as Foursquare. I think it's true of our, of our movement as a faith. That if we are going to figure out what it means to be Christians in the next hundred years, we have to go back. We have to go back and look at what it was like in the first ten. And if the church can become all that it was intended to be, then I think the church is still the best hope for the world. So, we come in on this last chapter of Acts, and we see that, that uh, Paul, uh, in this historical narrative of the scriptures, we see that Paul, he... Um, uh, uh, we see the end of his story that's recorded in the scriptures. The rest of what we see of Paul is found in uh, letters to the churches um, that Paul is, is sending to the churches that he's been supporting. And a lot of these letters we call the prison epistles because the tradition holds that Paul was writing these letters while he was in prison in Rome. So Paul, he's been making enemies as he spreads the good news of this messianic hope of the Jews and consequently the rest of humanity, that it's been fulfilled in Jesus. He's been inviting anyone and everyone to listen to, uh, to this message of repentance and new life defined by the resurrection power of Christ. And he's been declaring that Jesus is the true king of the heavens and the earth. And many of the Jewish leaders don't like this because they don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah. They think that he's blasphemous, that he's a false prophet who's stirring the pot and causing trouble. So the Jewish leaders don't like it because of that. And the Romans don't like this because the Roman gospel declares that Caesar is Lord. So to declare that this man from Galilee is above Caesar is clearly the stuff of rebellions and chaos. So Paul, he's being put on trial, but the local leaders are unable to find him at fault for anything officially against Rome because Paul is a Roman citizen. And so he's afforded certain rights that many of the conquered citizens are not given. So the Romans want to make sure that if they're going to sentence Paul to death, that they're certain that he's done something that is against Roman law. So Paul, they don't know what to do with him. They keep passing on his case. So Paul asks that his case be taken to Caesar directly. So they ship him off to Rome with some of the Praetorian Guard, which are like the high-ranking military that carried out the tasks from the emperor specifically. But along the way, quiet, but along the way, they get shipwrecked on this island. And it's three months before they can continue to roam. I mean, it happens in the Bible in like this little paragraph, but they're on this island for three months, him and this guard. And because of the water and the storms in that season, they had to wait that long before they can continue on their journey. And while they're there, Paul witnesses to the locals and they come to worship Jesus. Finally, they get back on the road to Rome and he's put on house arrest. And he's in this home for years, hosting different people, continuing to share the good news of Jesus Christ and his kingdom. And it's unusual that this prisoner would be granted such privileges. Part of me wonders if during their time shipwrecked, if Paul had kind of gained the respect and trust of his captors, specifically the main Praetorian guard who is guarding him personally. He's still a prisoner, though. Paul is chained, and it appears that uh, even though he's chained, he has the ability to invite people over, to host people, and share the news about Jesus. But when Paul arrives in Rome, he's greeted by Christians. Christians hear that he's coming, and they greet him when he arrives, and they travel a significant distance to meet with him. And that must have been a really good feeling. 
for Paul, who's been putting his life literally on the line to share this message, to find that the gospel has reached Rome and that these Christians are there anticipating his arrival. And we get to see this amazing dynamic where these perfect strangers welcome each other and greet each other and they extend hospitality to one another because of their shared hope in Jesus. That's really cool. Sometimes I wish Christian unity in the West felt so seamless. That random strangers I'd never met before, because we both love Jesus, had trust and love for one another. And then he meets the leaders of the Jewish community, and he addresses them as brothers. Even though they had not accepted the truth about Jesus, he hasn't turned his back on them. And I think it lends itself to this revelation that we impacted a couple of weeks ago, this truth that Jesus' fingerprints are everywhere, and revelation of his truth is alive in everyone, even if they don't know it yet. And proximity to, to truth in Christ will harden the hearts of the proud and it'll transform the hearts of the humble. And that's exactly what we see happen. So the Jews come to meet with Paul a second time to hear about this gospel proclamation, this messianic hope. And some believe and they come to worship Jesus and others do not. And Paul offers this kind of final rebuke uh, to those who do not believe by quoting the Old Testament prophet Isaiah he says, you will indeed listen, but never understand. You will indeed look, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and their eyes and ears, their ears are hard of hearing, and their eyes have been shut. Notice that Paul's harshness, this rebuke, is to the Jews and to the religious elite, and not to the Gentiles. And it's because there's something within the hearts of the religious, a sin that is perhaps more deadly and damning than any other kind of debauchery found in the Gentiles and the pagans. And that's pride. Pride. Pride is what leads us to attempt to build that utopia without God. It's what convinces us that we don't need the love and salvation of Jesus. Pride is the original sin. Mankind was deceived into believing that they knew better than God. Their ability to discern good from evil was better than God's. And that way of living breeds shame, anxiety, fear, discouragement, distraction. We're often really hard on the Jewish leaders, but we are a lot like them. At least I am. See, they desperately wanted to keep God's people holy and to keep them from idolatry. Those are good motives. But the problem was they got so concerned with doing things for God that they forgot to do things with him. They failed to recognize God when he walked into the room, when he put on flesh and came to Bethlehem. They didn't even recognize him. Their pride had deceived them yet again as it deceives us to make us think that we know better than God. And we see this in the Pharisees, the religious elite, and we see a posture from them that is anxious, that is stressed, they're deceiving all the time. They're plotting. They're hating. They're angry. That's what we see in the religious elite. What do we see in Paul? Not that. We see peace. We see joy. We see gratitude. The timeline's a bit fuzzy historically, but it's generally believed that Paul was in and out of prison and house arrest from AD 60 to AD 67, awaiting this trial before the emperor. And like I mentioned, um, many... Uh, uh, Many people think that it's during this time frame that Paul wrote most of his prison epistles. And if you read Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Philemon, you will see so much language about joy and gratitude and peace and hope. 
And notice that the book of Acts concludes in this very hopeful, open-ended way. Even though the tradition holds that Paul was beheaded because of his life's work of sharing the gospel, Paul was imprisoned around AD 60, and it was around AD 64 that there was this big fire in Rome that got blamed on the Christians. So around AD 64 is when we started seeing this kind of formalized persecution of the Christians, people being executed before the state in arenas like with animals and burnings and things like this. But even in historical accounts of those persecutions like Perpetua and and Polycarp in the early church history, we see this unshakable hope that death and pain was hardly a threat, hardly a problem when compared to the glory of the kingdom of heaven coming to earth. We, uh, we read back in Acts chapter 20 that Paul, he was already ready to die. He was ready to give his life for the spreading of the gospel. So anytime we read from Paul after chapter 20 to when he died in AD 67, because it was around AD 57 that Acts chapter 20 happened, about a decade, it was grace. And during that entire decade, he embraced the reality that it could be his last day tomorrow. He was ready. We don't know for certain, but it's thought that that uh, for, for some, that for Paul, his last chronological letter was 2 Timothy. And a lot of people think this because of some of the language that we see in 2 Timothy. And there's some really powerful words. Specifically in 2 Timothy chapter 4, it says this, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. See, Paul had peace because he knew that his death at the hands of his oppressors was not his final fate. And that the king that he worshipped and served was the Lord of life and had conquered death. And only Jesus could hold his fate. See, the kingdom of heaven is not something that we need to anxiously protect. It's not this utopia that we need to invent. The kingdom of heaven is just a reality that, we have, that has been inaugurated by Jesus and that we get to joyfully share. So what's keeping you from experiencing the peace and joy and hope that we see in Paul? What's keeping us from this non-anxious joy that we get in our mission? Well, one, Paul attributes everything to Jesus. <laughs> he embraced an intimacy with the Holy Spirit. His relationship to God, that was what drove him. How are, you, how are you doing with that? How are we doing with that? Are we drawing close to Jesus in prayer, in thought, in action? Are we grafting our lives into the vine that is Jesus to draw our life from him? We're going to talk about this next week. But our lives cannot have fruit like joy, peace, love without being intimate with Jesus. I usually find that when I'm the most irritable, the most volatile, the most anxious, the most short-tempered, the most stressed, it's usually because I'm trying to muscle my life into submission, trying to enact utopia in my own will, and I'm not drawing close to Jesus. In short, it's usually when I'm taking myself way too seriously and overestimating how powerful and smart and capable I am. Ultimately, the book of Acts is not about Paul, as brilliant and as able-bodied and powerful as he was. It's not about Paul. It's about the power of God, specifically about the kingdom that Jesus has brought and is bringing, and how we, empowered by the Holy Spirit, get to come alongside 
what he has already done and is doing, proclaiming the good news that Christ has come. This is why rhythms like Sabbath are really important. Sabbath is this this command to cease, to stop from your work and your agendas. Because it's so important for God's people to acknowledge that even when we stop, the world does not stop spinning. (laughs) The kingdom does not stop spreading. We are not as important as we think we are. (laughs) So you can stop for a day. You can rest because you are not the savior of the universe. You get to flow from this relationship that you have been saved and then work from that. We get to co-labor with him. God doesn't partner with us because he has to. You know, the all-powerful thing? He doesn't need us. He chooses to partner with us because it gives him and us joy. Co-laboring is a joyful relationship and back and forth. And one way to keep this tendency in check if, if, if we're taking ourselves too seriously and trying to muscle our lives into submission, is to, ch- is to clothe yourself in humility. <laughs> clothe yourself in humility. The book of Acts closes with Luke describing Paul sharing the good news of Christ's kingdom with boldness and without hindrance. Note that there is a difference between boldness and pride. They are not the same. A couple of things I want you to write down or just take a mental note of. Pride is an insecure attempt to qualify the self. That's what pride is. Boldness is a confidence which comes from a power that is beyond myself. Pride is an insecure attempt to qualify the self. Boldness is a confidence which comes from a power beyond myself. Something else to write down. Boldness is not about being prideful. Boldness is about being unshakable. Boldness is not about being prideful. It's about being unshakable. I said something at the beginning of this message that sometimes we want uh, others to be Christians, not because we want to share what we've been given, but because we want to be vindicated in our own beliefs, right? So we try to sell Jesus and manipulate people into the kingdom. When it comes to how some of us express our beliefs and values, some of us think we're being bold when we're really just being obnoxious. I'm going to claim it for myself. I'm not just pointing my finger at you. We all have a tendency to do this. We think we're being bold, we're really just being obnoxious. The kingdom of heaven, in the kingdom, boldness is always born out of love. Boldness is not void of humility. That's the difference between boldness and pride. So I'll throw a couple of things up here and we're going to walk through it. Boldness versus pride. So with boldness, boldness implies gratitude. I have experienced the blessing of God. Whereas pride is characterized by entitlement. Only I deserve to be blessed by God. If you want to know if you're drifting from what Jesus wants from you, check the fuel gauge on your gratitude. (laughs) The life of the Jesus follower is supposed to be overflowing with gratitude because of the wonderful gifts of love and grace and mercy and new life and identity and hope for a redeemed world. When our lives are not defined by gratitude, it's because we're succumbing to pride. Specifically, entitlement. I only get what I deserve. And this can puff up, puff me up when good things come my way, and it can deflate me and discourage me when bad things come my way, because life only happens by what I deserve. And it makes some of us really, really obnoxious to the people around us. And the scary thing is, we are rarely as aware of our entitled look than we are to the people around us. A life at peace approaches everything with humility and gratitude. 
Boldness is also characterized by love and compassion. I want more people to know the love of Jesus that I have come to know. Whereas pride is about bitterness and selfishness. I want more people to be like me. So they stop bothering me. Love and compassion should be what fuels our evangelism. It's because we know the transformative power of Christ's love that we want to share that love with others. But sometimes we want our politicians, our school teachers, and our leaders and our neighbors to be Christians because we want them to create lives for us that are more comfortable. The more people around me that think and act and vote like me, the more comfortable I'll be. But notice, Paul was not concerned with how comfortable he was. Paul wrote these words from chains. I have learned to be content in all things. Paul never found himself in an echo chamber. No, because Paul was intentionally engaging in relationship with people who thought, worshipped, and acted differently than he did. Sometimes, as Christians, we like the comfort and the safety of our echo chambers, but we are not called to be comfortable. We are called to the cruciform, cross-shaped life, which loves sacrificially. Our motive for seeing the good news of Jesus spread in our community should not be because we want people to look like us, but because we want to look like Jesus, right? Boldness is also characterized by urgency. It's important. Everyone needs to hear this good news. You see this urgency in Paul and in the New Testament. But pride operates out of paranoia and defensiveness. No one understands me, right? See, urgency focuses on others. The focus is on sharing the thing that we've been given, whereas paranoia focuses on the self. Again, this is a facet of pride. It's an attempt at self-preservation, but it's hardly a way to live. Paranoia assumes ill will behind every door. Here's the thing. Sometimes our trauma and our hurt can condition us to assume the worst about people in our lives. But the hope of Jesus is that we can experience transformation not only in ourselves, but in others. It takes us off the defensive and it puts us on the offensive. You are a child of the most high God, dignified, beloved, and adored by the creator of the universe. That's you. Pride will ignore that reality because pride has to do with what I've done to deserve who I am how I'm entitled to what I've caused in my life, good or bad. But boldness receives the reality of belovedness as a gift and it releases shame to the hell that it came from. Boldness also has an expectation of renewal. The expectation is this, God is doing a good thing. No matter where or what or why or how, if you are breathing and God is real, he is doing a good thing. Whereas pride will expect resistance. God has abandoned these people. Now, there are times in the scriptures where we see that God gives people over to their sinful desires. If we choose to walk away from the giver of life, as much as it grieves God's heart, God will honor our free will. But when we get jaded and we go into this Outcome, with this outcome as an expectation, that means we stop trying. We get discouraged by our experiences and we get limited in our perspectives and the, and the enemy immobilizes us by convincing us 
that it's not worth the effort. Paul never once, never once, after people rejected the gospel, stopped sharing the good news. Not once. Nor did he stop believing that there would be some who will listen. Have you been discouraged? Do you need an infusion of hope that God is doing a good thing? Listen, not everyone is going to respond to the truth that is alive in and through you by the Spirit. But that's not for us to decide. You can't change anyone. You cannot change anyone. For the people in the back, you can't. We are simply seed sowers, right? We're throwing and casting seed. We leave it to the head farmer to figure out where it lands and where it takes root, right? So the book of Acts, it bookends itself. It starts with Christ's ascension and the commission given to the gospels that as you are going, tell people about me. Teach them to live the way that I have taught you. And we end with Paul faithfully fulfilling that mandate. And he writes these things in his prison epistles. I have learned to be content in all things. To live is Christ. To die is gain. Be anxious about nothing, but in everything with thanksgiving present your requests to God, and the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. I have kept the faith. These are Paul's departing words from this world. The book of Acts opens with this mandate for the kingdom and the gospel, which feels huge. To take the good news, to share it with Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth, which is why Jesus does not ask that we do it in our own power. No, he sent the Spirit. And we see in Acts with the fulfillment of that promise, the gospel has reached Rome and is now, is now going to spread with boldness and without hindrance. And today, what's the largest faith movement in the world? Jesus. So what would it look like to move away from pride and to move towards an emboldened life fueled by the Spirit? What would it look like for us to carry with us this unshakable spirit that always hopes, always perseveres, what things in your life have bred pride in you? Where are you experiencing bitterness and entitlement and discouragement? What hurts, what trauma, what loss has occurred in your life which has caused you to pick up pride as this defense mechanism to try to keep yourself safe? This is your sign. God wants you to set those things aside, to let them go. God wants you to stop trying to muscle your way into paradise. God wants you to be done with your shame, your bitterness, your unforgiveness. God wants to invite you into a story that is so much bigger than you. He wants you to get lost in the hope of the new creation. And here's the good news. The invitation to follow Christ is always open. Christ stands with his hands extended towards you always. And there are those of us maybe who have wandered far from God and we're ready to come home and we're ready to experience the transformative power of his love. And some of us have been really close to church, but we haven't experienced the joy of our faith in a long time. I think God wants to resurrect your joy in your faith. I think some of us in here are ready to be done with bitterness and with entitlement 
and we're ready to embrace the joy and the peace of following Jesus. Trusting that even when we aren't comfortable, we can be content because God is doing a good thing. So we're going to close this series in Acts the way we started it. We're going to say a prayer to receive the Holy Spirit. See, um, the scholar Craig Keener, he argues that the filling of the Holy Spirit was not meant to be this one-time thing that happened in the first century, but that the filling of the Holy Spirit is a regular occurrence that happens as often as we breathe. The Spirit is called the Ruach, the Pneuma. This is the breath, the wind of God. We always need this refreshing, this infilling, this renewal to be reminded of who God is and who he's made us to be. And so we're going to spend three minutes in silence. And during that time, I just want you to say a breath prayer. A breath prayer is basically a prayer that you say quietly or in your head as you breathe. And as we do this, I want you to breathe in and say, I receive the Holy Spirit. And breathe out and say, and I release my pride. I receive the Holy Spirit and I release my pride. We can have this joy, this peace, this power, this love that we have in God. We can have this, but we have to set aside the things that are going to rob us of what God has for us. So I'm going to pray for us, and we're going to sit for three minutes in silent reflection, and just as you breathe in and breathe out, say this prayer, I receive the Holy Spirit, and I release my pride. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the good work that you are doing in this world. I pray that as we sit here now, that we would receive your spirit again. Holy Spirit, would you fall afresh on us this morning? We need a new outpouring. We need renewal. We need refreshment. God, we pray for your hope that would fill our lungs, fill our souls, and that you would push out the schemes of the enemy, lies, deceit, pride, Would you have your way? In your name we pray. Amen.